Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. I'd like to welcome everyone to episode 47 of Criminology. So, Morph, last week we put out part one of More Murray. And then our plan for this week was to do an interview with Tim Polari and Lance Reinsterna from the Missing Mora Murray podcast. Tim and Lance know just about everything there is to know about this case. And we wanted to pick their brain, ask them questions get their take on certain things. So we recorded an interview with Tim and Lance, but then this happened. Tomorrow will mark 15 years since a UMass Amherst student crashed her car in New Hampshire and was never seen or heard from again. So on the eve of the anniversary of Maura Murray's disappearance, her dad tells our Catherine Underwood he thinks there could be a major break in the case. It's been 15 agonizing years since Fred Murray hugged his daughter. Everybody that ever had a kid knows. History of the planet knows how I feel. And uh, it can't go away. On the night of February 9th, 2004, Maura Murray crashed her car into a snowbank along this desolate road in Woodsville, New Hampshire, and was never seen again. When you're with somebody every day and all of a sudden they're gone, um, it's unimaginable. Maura's family has been searching for answers ever since, and now her dad has some news to share. I finally got so close. I'm, I'm standing on my daughter's grave, I believe. In early December, Murray paid for two cadaver dogs to search a private property near the crash. They both made positive findings for a cadaver buried under where they sat down. That's their signal in the same spot. He believes his daughter is buried in that cellar. You can reach out and, and if it was, the cement was near, I could start scratching my hands and dig. And I would. Mora was a star athlete from Hanson, Massachusetts. It was around 7 o'clock that February night when, according to her family, a passerby saw Mora's crashed car and stopped to help. But Mora waved them along. He said, do you need help? She said, no, I already called AAA. That witness called police, but by the time officers arrived, she was gone. The attorney general's office says it's aware of Murray's recent discovery in that nearby basement, but investigators say a previous search at that location turned up nothing. I would have heard about it. I don't believe them. So Murray is calling on the attorney general to go back into that house. I want them to win and, and, and dig my daughter up. But in his desperate quest for closure, he says if necessary, he'll find a way to do it himself. I'll fund it. I'll do it. Anything. That's my daughter. I, I, I want to bring her home and bury her. 
The Murray family tells me they're asking everyone everywhere to join them in lighting a candle at 7.30 on Saturday night to show Mora the search continues. So that was kind of shocking news right in the middle of us putting together this episode. So we're still going to air the Tim and Lance interview. It's great. But Morph was able to get with Tim and Lance again after this news broke and do another short interview about this breaking news. So we'll play that at the end. So before we get to the interview, let's do our Patreon shout outs. We had Samantha Schertzberg, Vin Dirtstrat, Kimberly Howlett, Jennifer Rasmussen, and Kay Kroniski. So appreciate that new support. And like we always say, we appreciate the new support, the continued support, It really goes a long way towards helping Morph and I continue to put out this podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash criminology. So let's dive right in. Let's hear the interview that Morph and I did with Tim and Lance. I'm Tim Polari, and uh, I host a few different true crime podcasts with my good buddy, Lance Reinstierna. Thank you, Tim, for that wonderful pronunciation of my name. Yes, we do Missing More Murray, Crawl Space, Empty Frames. Got a lot of uh, irons in the fire, in the crime fire. We uh, are not, uh, we don't have a law enforcement background or anything like that. We began Missing More Murray in July of 2015 as a weekly podcast trying to promote a documentary that we were working on that at the time was called The Disappearance of Maura Murray. We ended up uh, sort of having the podcast Missing Maura Murray become more popular than we had ever expected. And so there was a chance for a television show investigation to happen with that case. And so we really wanted that to happen because we thought the publicity that that would add to the case would only help it. And so that ended up happening uh, with on the Oxygen Network called The Disappearance of Maura Murray began airing in September of 2017 and we launched crawl space in February of 2017. And on that show, we do more than just one case. It's also true crime. We, uh, we'll talk about all sorts of different crime elements. Uh, we'll talk to other podcasters like we've had morph on several times and, uh, we'll get into deep dives on other cases like the Brianna Maitland, uh, disappearance, or uh, the Dean murder out of Jaffrey, New Hampshire in 1918? 1918, yep, the August, August of 1918. The documentary that we had started with missing with, uh, with Maura Murray called The Disappearance of Maura Murray wasn't so much about her disappearance as it was the people who were obsessed with the case. Because when we first started looking at Maura's case, it is a really fascinating case on the surface. Single car accident. Young woman, 21 years old from sort of our neighborhood, UMass Amherst. She she disappears. There's never been a trace of her. It's, been, it's going on 15 years now, coming up in uh, on February 9th. And while that alone is very fascinating and intriguing and kind of kind of scary at times, the people who looked into the case were so intense and so passionate 
and the chatter and and their theories and it just it never it never stopped emerging as a better story uh that they kept topping each other with. If one person had one story, one theory, someone else would come in and they'd add to it or they'd have something better. So we really wanted to do a documentary about the mindset of the people who started becoming citizen detectives for for this case and for other cases and other people who are more on the fringe and and sort of not, not really um, grasping onto the reality that Mora was a person. So it was a, sort of a psychological experiment for us. Yeah. And then we kind of quickly realized that we, we have a an audience here that wants to hear more ab- than just that. And they want to hear about the case. And so Missing Mora Murray became more about the case, covering the case. And uh, our documentary, well, I, I suppose our documentary, the one that we aimed to produce about people who are obsessed with the case, was really put on the back burner until... October of 2018 when we finally released it on Amazon Prime called Finding Mora Murray. It's in four parts currently. We do have a lot more footage. Yeah, we got a ton (laughs) more footage. So I will say this. You know, when I started True Crime All the Time in 2016, there wasn't the plethora of true crime podcasts, obviously, that there are today. But one of them that was out there was Missing Mora Murray. And it was one that I listened to and I became engrossed into it um, like a lot of people did. And you just couldn't wait till that next week to find out, okay, what are Tim and Lance going to reveal to us this week? You know, for me, that kind of got me into, I kind of want to do, I mean, I don't do a ongoing case like missing more Murray. Ours are more one-off or, you know, some multi-parters, but it kind of got me into wanting to do podcasts. I'll give you a little, a uh, little credit there because I, the job that you guys did in starting that kind of kickstarted me into thinking I'd like to do something. So we were, we sounded inspirational. We sounded so amateur that you were like, I could do it as good as these assholes. Not, not amateur, un, unvarnished. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah so no, unvarnished. No, we appreciate it. We can spin any compliment into a backhanded, some sort of self-effacing yeah, uh, yeah, jab. Yeah. I don't know if, if you found this because I have, there are a lot of podcasts out there that are extremely polished, but I've heard from a lot of people that they like the, I don't want to say amateurish cause that's not the right word, but the, the back and forth of the host, the, the chemistry, you know, maybe not so much of the music and production and, there are a lot of people that like that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of how we started ours. I think uh, a lot of that goes to what our business partner, Mr. K, said when he first approached us. He wanted to, us to do uh, Empty Frames, which is about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. And what he liked about it was our rapport was a lot like sports talk radio. And so many people listen to sports talk radio because of that back and forth. It just happens we're talking about true crime. So there's another really popular genre. And sorry. And when you have like those highly produced ones, it takes away from the story sometimes to listen to the, like the Foley work and to, I don't know, it just, just pulls me out of it a bit. I don't think you get the personal connection when you listen to a, an NPR produced uh, true crime podcast, right? I mean, I really think there's something, there's something more personal with a back and forth. Like we, we don't cut our breaths, you know, like you, like we're breathing right in people's ears. You know, I don't think um, journalists who record for NPR true crime shows like, you know that stuff's all written it's kind of 
you know, they're just reading it off of a piece of paper or, or a screen. So there's a huge difference there in the personal connection that the podcaster has with the audience. And another thing is when you know that it's pre-produced when you start it, you don't feel like you're being taken along the narrative as the hosts are. You don't feel like you're experiencing it in real time as as the host. You know that there'll be an end, and it's just a matter of what's going to happen to tie up this story. Right. Well, and and I, I think that's what I hear the most is from audience members. They feel like they're sitting around with us listening to the story as they would a friend or a group of friends. I hear that a lot. Yeah. I really wanted to give you guys props because you were on the forefront you know, at the forefront of this true crime kind of podcast movement. And there's been, gosh, I don't know, hundreds, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many are out there now, but all right. So let's get into tomorrow. Okay. Lance, you mentioned it. 15th anniversary. This episode part two is going to air February 9th. So it will literally be the 15 year anniversary of Moore's disappearance. When you guys sit back and you realize that it's been 15 years, does that number one surprise you? And then number two, do you feel like there, there should have been by this point, some sort of resolution in this case? Oh man, good questions. Yeah, there's layers there. Um, yeah, I think being surprised that we're still here and it's 15 years and we've been on board for like four of those years. Like initially looking at this, uh, yeah, I, I guess from like yeah that whatever the the bird's eye view, it is really mind blowing to me that it's been 15 years and there hasn't been a single shred of evidence. Well, especially with the amount of publicity that's been raised in the case, uh, you do hear that that helps uh these cases and so far as far as we know it hasn't helped to the point where there's evidence unearthed it has um shined quite a light on the case but uh but yeah i mean it just seems like the the further we go and we're at 15 years now it just seems like this might have been a random crime and it didn't really seem like that before it seemed it felt more solvable before in some ways, and I'm not saying it's not solvable now, but there, there's been an incredible light shown on it in the past few years. And for no seemingly nothing to have shaken out at this point is a little depressing. Yeah, it's a little disheartening. But another thing that is surprising after 15 years is finally seeing organizations come together to work on. You reminded me when you said unearthing maybe some evidence we've had people reaching out and volunteering with uh gpr with you know a guy down the street will say come by and grab a shovel and crowbars if you ever need some tools like all of a sudden people are coming together to make something something happen yeah so when we got involved it was around the 10 year mark or something like that and a lot of the questions that we had then have been answered it just hasn't led to an answer in the case unfortunately that we know of yeah 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 i mean the the whole run of this podcast and the whole uh tv show has has really kind of axed out a couple of theories that people have a lot of questions people had maybe this person did it and we're left with it to me kind of seems like mora got into a random person's car 
And you know, it's a really funny question that, or funny timing with the question that you just asked, because Tim and I, this is not a plug, but it's kind of a plug. Tim and I are working on the creator commentary for the early episodes, and they're available on Stitcher Premium. And we did that so that we could give somebody something more exclusive as far as listening to episodes of Missing More Murray. From three years ago. From three years ago. And it also gives us the opportunity to to listen back at anything that was put out there as far as information, details, facts, where they were they accurate how did it change and we get to comment on that in today's world so you get to you you get to hear what it was back then and you get to hear it now so it's funny you ask that question because we're currently experiencing that as we're listening to these old episodes and thinking back and just commenting like okay well that is now like this or yeah. we know that this is no longer a fact and i would so, say so obviously you know information today that you didn't know 3 4 years ago so you can clarify or clear up some of the things that maybe you said on early episodes that you thought to be true. But now with information that came out later, you know, either it's not true or it happened differently or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yep. And you can confirm and clarify and clear up. The three, the three C's now. It's a great opportunity to be able to do that because, uh, as you guys know, once you say something, it's it's out there and you can't take those words back, really. But, um, you know, if, if people are following along this journey with us, then this is the best way to uh, hear what we feel about everything we said now, you know, he, hear it now. Are there some, some big misconceptions in this case that perhaps you guys have stumbled across that are still out there that people should be aware of? No. <laughs> I think he's being sarcastic. Um, misconceptions, yes. yeah. I my mean, my new favorite one. Sorry to interrupt. My no, new go for it. my new favorite one is that uh, the cadaver dogs went bonkers at the A frame house, and everyone thought that when cadaver dogs get a hit on a on a scent of a dead human being, then they go bonkers. And people have been saying that for maybe seven years, seven or eight years, and it turns out that due to the people who came forward and working with cadaver dogs, they don't go bonkers. They do the opposite. They sit down and they, they, they stop. Right. So this is a great example of how the case has changed a little bit because uh, we now know that Maura Murray is not on the A-frame property. Uh, we did not know that in 2011. Uh, and we also are pretty sure that Maura wasn't on uh, Rick, neighbor Rick, who was right there on, on his property. We had dogs there. We had GPR there. We thought we had a, a something really interesting for a minute, but but we didn't. So we were actually able to cross off a lot of the questions that rose from doing the initial run of the podcast, like the A-Frame, uh, the Moulton Brothers, the... SUV uh, 001 versus 002, that misconception. Right. Witness A. Yeah. So, and unfortunately, yeah, we what we're left with, it, it could be random, which as you guys know, is the most difficult thing to solve. And we, we did touch on the SUVs, 001, 002. We talked about Witness A. We did not get in. Obviously, we couldn't do the deep dive that you guys did over. How many episodes have you actually done on Maura Murray? Do you know? Before switching in, I know you switched into some other cases well we've we've covered a few other cases on the uh, on that feed but i would say north of 85 mm, episodes yeah. on mora just like a handful on uh other people like brianna maitland we we did we talked to 
few other people that we didn't really touch on Mora so much in a couple of cases, but all still within the Mora world, though. Yeah. Right. Right. So we obviously couldn't go in depth, and we're going to tell everybody. You couldn't do eighty-five you know, episodes on that. Come on. No. We yeah. We 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 chose not to, but <laughs> we're going to tell everybody. Hey, you listened to ours. You heard the. I'll call it the frame, the details, but the there's so much more. If you want to dive into this head first, you've got to go out and listen to Missing More Murray with Tim and Lance. But we didn't touch on the A-frame. We didn't touch on the Moulton brothers. We didn't touch on some of those things. You know, you mentioned the publicity that this case has generated. And, and I think what's resulted from that is you've got your Reddit investigators. You've got your, your people out there that are looking into the case. They have their own theories. Witnesses come forward. So we, we did touch on some of the more popular theories and we wanted to go through some of those with you and kind of get your opinion on why you think some of these either hold water, don't hold water. So let's start off with talking about, you know, Morris simply wandered off from the car and died from exposure. Okay. Well, um, I would say that there were a healthy amount of searches done and uh, done by New Hampshire Fish and Game. Your favorite guy. Todd Bogardis. He was on the Disappearance of Maura Murray show that was on Oxygen. And really, that was the first time that we heard the scope of the search that was done around the vicinity of where Maura went missing. And these guys are really thorough. And I know that there's a lot of stories of searches being done and bodies being found after that search and no one seeing the body during the search. But... These searches were very extensive and they done done with dogs. I'm not saying that there couldn't be value in doing another search like that, but right now as we sit here, I don't think Mora is in that immediate vicinity having wandered off. There was a, a fresh coat of, of fine snow that had fallen. They did helicopter searches with heat-detecting sensors, uh, heat-detecting uh, vision, infrared, and they saw foxes running through the woods, but they never saw any sign of a body. Um, right across the street is the wild Amanusik River. It does get... It, I mean, there are sections of that river that do get a little... Uh, they, they do flow pretty rapidly, but that, that section right there, in order to get to that section of the river, and if she slipped and fell and hit her head, she wouldn't have been washed all the way down and out to the Connecticut River by any means. It's very rocky. There's a lot of snow there, a lot of um, a lot of frozen like snow drifts around it. Um, her getting eaten by some animal in the woods, a bear or something. I think they're still hibernating in February. I don't. I'm not sure about that, but I. I and I also don't know a bear that would clean up after itself so neatly that nothing was ever found. There was extensive searches into that area. No footprints. And the dogs. The dogs. The dogs are really what it comes down to. The the scent dogs lost the scent on the road about 100 yards up. One thing that, too, we, we touched on a little bit is if she's got the clothes on her back, it's snowing, it's cold out there, how far could she really get, especially if she had any kind of alcohol in her system? That could have, that could have caused her to get hypothermia faster than somebody that wasn't drinking. So you wonder how far she would have gotten before – 
she would have fallen and collapsed, and you think that she would have been found easier if she simply walked off. Well, there's a kind of a misconception that it is so remote there, and she's at the base of the White Mountains, and there's she's surrounded by a lot of like isolation. But that stretch of road right there has, I mean, where she crashed has four houses or five houses within within shouting distance. If she had walked along the road, it's such a narrow road, and it is a very busy road. With as far no, as, no sidewalks. No sidewalk, yeah. She would have been seen um, if she had walked and and gotten to the point where she suffered some sort of hypothermia and collapsed. She definitely would have been seen by someone. Unless she was like running along and ducking into driveways or will or you know uh, wooded areas for every car that drove past for like an hour. You know, she would have been seen by someone. I think. And uh, and again, back to the dogs, they lost. They lost the scent. They at lost a the point. scent at a point where, uh, you know, if it would have been the same way Mora was going, if she got into a car, it would have been the same way Mora was going, same direction, and they lost r- the scent right where she would have gotten into a passenger seat. You know, like right on, on that, that side of the road. On that side of the road, going the direction that her car was traveling before the accident. So it it does seem like she got into a vehicle to me. So I I had this question because, you know, you talk about the fresh snow. In my mind, I'm thinking pretty easy to track someone. You guys know the weather conditions much better, but is that a true statement? If she gets off the road going into the snow someone would have seen her footprints or her snow prints. Yeah, she definitely would have been tracked if she went into the woods right in that immediate vicinity. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would have seen footprints, no doubt about it. You know, I think one of the other theories, and you guys have talked about it quite a bit, is the possibility that she somehow hatched a plan to disappear willingly and start a new life someplace. What do you guys think of that theory? Well, from what we've learned, it, it would take a lot more effort than, say, the few days that we know Mora took um, to prepare herself for this trip that w- in going to New Hampshire. I mean, might it was actually probably a lot less than a few days yeah, of we, preparation. We know that she did prepare to go away for a couple of days due to her calls to Ghosto, Ghosto and Brenton Woods. So we know that she was planning some destination somewhere. And she had MapQuest de- um, map uh, directions, directions printed out printed out to uh, Bretton Woods. And Burlington, Vermont, I Burlington, believe. Vermont, that was one of the options. So with all of these searches that they were easily able to locate, the, the theory that she was able to do enough preparation to 100% disappear without a trace, without a cell phone ping, without any use of a car, like a credit card, and her car wasn't even with her, so she had to include somebody else, some other form of transportation. All the preparation to do that successfully, there was nothing found on on her computer that we know of that would suggest that she made these, what would seem to be very systematic, pragmatic plans to successfully disappear for 15 years. I think the longer we go, the less likely that one seems... Um because it just would get more and more difficult every year, and especially with the publicity of this case, if she had escaped her life and started some new one somewhere else. 
chances of her being recognized just keep going up and up. And there have been incidents where people have seen other people, have seen young women who look like Mora, and then they post their picture online and they say, could this be it? Uh, you know, we're praying that this is Mora, and they're not realizing that this is not Mora, and it's somebody else's image that's now online. And then that person's like, please take down my image. And then they go, well, why is this person demanding their image? It must be Mora because they don't want their image out there. And it's actually just somebody who's in privacy you, you just invaded. So even with these really what seems to be solid leads, it's not a lead because it's been a bit polluted by some 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 people who really want it to be the case. They want it to be their their solvable theory. Yeah, and we've heard no from no one. Um, we've heard no... We've seen no evidence that she was around after that moment. We've heard from none of her friends or family who, you know, uh, believe she ran away or anything like that. The the one thing that the I guess the biggest thing issue that I have with that one is it's 2004 to now 2019. We're not talking about 1930, right? That's true. How is a 21 year old woman going to with you said what appears to be very little initial planning or planning up front going to disappear and leave no digital footprint use no cards it just seems very unlikely well she went into canada and just started working under the table at some bar He's being sarcastic again, guys. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Not, no, not it does. Lance. It, it seems unlikely. It really does. Her social security number was never, had never been touched, um, you know, by, by her at least. We we believe there was some fraud activity at one point. Um, but yeah, the, the, there was money, you know, I, I think a lot of people talk about the $4,000 that, uh, that Fred had and that brought he brought with him the weekend before she went missing to look at a car from his story. Apparently, a lot of that money was put into an account that Mora could access and we're told can even still access using her social security number, um, but never has. In order for her to pull that off, she would have to not be a part of any social media. She probably couldn't have a cell phone in her name, in her actual name, and she would have to stay away from any photo that was taken of her. Now, that would be easy to do if she was in a, in a big city, but there are more people in a big city who would be more likely to listen to podcasts or read blogs about her. So then she would have to think about going to a small town, but then she's more recognizable as a stranger who goes into a small town. So to get away with it for 15 years is a really... She would have to be... She would have to be funded. She, and and living in a cabin in the woods in like northern yeah. Maine. And, and the, there is a theory that kind of has come up over the years that maybe she was some kind of government spy, CIA. Some CIA operative or something like that. And to be perfectly honest, I find that more reasonable now uh, than I ever have. Because I, it's happened. Yeah, th- there is actually a, a little bit of precedent of that. Even someone from West Point having joined that lifestyle, having disappeared and then um, joining the CIA. Uh, of course, that was a, a very long time ago. But um I, I am more prone to believe that than she went missing on her own and, it, you know, is working under the table somewhere. Seems really unlikely. And and you think if she came out right now and said, here I am, I'll sell my story, you think she could make a fortune 
to sell her story and come out now that she might do that. So that seems like another reason to think that she's not out there someplace. That would be That's a, a great point. That would be a uh, worldwide story, no doubt about it. But yeah, she's listening to this and then she she knows that she can come out and say, this is what I was doing. This is why I ran away. That's a that's a that's a great point. Yeah, she could make a killing. Yeah, you're right. So I think and, and you guys have already touched on it a little bit of foreshadowing. But when you get into the theory of more was the victim of foul play, sounds like that's probably where the two of you are leaning at this point with all your years of research and and all that so if that was the case who in your minds are if you're willing to talk about them some of the suspects persons of interest that should be considered well good question yeah i i would say that is the direction i lean in at this point um because of all the factors and um and we haven't heard anything else there hasn't been any other leads I would say that the best piece of advice we can follow is what Jim Clemente said on our episode where we interviewed him. He came in. He's an FBI profiler, former FBI profiler. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, a former FBI profiler, Jim Clemente. He came into this with just a very uh, broad-stroked knowledge of Maura Murray's disappearance, and that was sort of by design so that we he didn't have this preconceived notion. And because of the area she went missing or where she had her accident, her single car accident, it's not so much right off the highways. It's like nine or 10 miles on either side off the highway. And he brought up the fact that that's not, that's, that's, that is a, that is quite a distance for somebody to just happen upon. It It is sort of a main route, 112 and the Kangamangas Highway, but that time of the year in February, it's not really a main route. So it's either somebody who is familiar with that area, knows that that's a cut through uh, highway or somebody who lives in that area. And if it's somebody who's familiar with that area, that's probably somebody who vacations there or skis there or hikes there. Considering it was February, it's probably somebody who skis there if they're there for seasonal activity. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think Jim Clemente's point, and I think it's pretty well taken just to reiterate, uh, is that this probably wasn't, it wasn't like Mora was hitchhiking on the highway and could have gotten picked up by some truck driver driving many states and he could have dropped her, you know, five states away or something like that. The, this road that she was on is in between two highways and whoever was traveling on it is either knows the area or is local to the area. We've only been on the road be on that road because of this mystery. I've never been there. Some other reason like going somewhere else. You know what I mean? There's almost no reason to travel somewhere else and, and hit that road. She was going somewhere. There was someone who was familiar with that road who went by and I believe she got into that person's car. They must have offered help there. It wasn't the bus driver. And like a follow-up question oftentimes will come, well, if she got into a random person's car, why didn't she take the bus driver's help? Well, I think at the time that the bus driver, Butch, came upon her accident, she said to him that she was trying AAA. He knew that wasn't exactly true, but what I think she was 
trying to do was get the car out of there, whether it be with the help of AAA or whether it be with the help of the, the, her own power, to, her own yeah. ignition that she tried. She tried to start the car nine times. We don't know if that was before or after Butch showed up, but I would be willing to bet that some of those clicks were after Butch left. She tried. She put the rag in her tailpipe herself, we believe, trying to perhaps get a little more oomph for the car to perhaps start or to get out of the little ditch she was in. So we believe at that at the point she told Butch she didn't need help. She really thought she was going to be able to get help herself. And then when Butch took off, she realized she could not get the help she needed herself by either calling AAA or by starting the car herself. So then she got out and started walking down the road like I believe most people would do. Right. Some some people, and I think it's a really uh, interesting theory, is that where she had her accident, if she walked uh, to to the east where in the direction that she was traveling in the direction that the dogs um, lost her scent, she has her cell phone. It's, it is a little bit of an incline there. And back then, like if you lost your cell phone signal, people would hold their cell phone up and try to get a signal. And maybe she did see that this was sort of uphill a bit. And she was walking in that direction to try to get a cell phone signal. It's just a really interesting sort of human theory that, that I like. And one thing that's interesting is there's such a small time frame to work with here because there are, other people driving on that road and whatever happened happened in such a small amount of time that it almost makes you wonder how it happened just in that just in that window yeah yeah that's something that we always talk about is this window of time and it could have been after faith westman hung up the phone with 911 and in between that and when butch went inside to call and then came out of his house before going back into his van to do his paperwork and look at the scene so it could have happened there or she could have she could have ducked behind the old weathered barn hoping to to like wait it out out. but that is not indicative to the dogs once again we get back to where the dogs lost her scent maybe she did go back and waited it out behind the old weathered barn but she would have had to have stayed there throughout the entire process and then left and then started walking right we know she got to the road um in front of butch atwood's house and in front of rick forcier uh the neighbor so she was basically right in between those two houses on the street a lot of people will, will point at those guys, last person to see her, and then this other guy across the street has his own story because he apparently um, said he saw her running that night, but that story didn't come out until a few months later. So then you say, well, that guy implicates himself, uh, and, and you, you, you would be right. Uh, so I think he was looked at and has been looked at very strongly as, as a person of interest, but if he is the guy then that means she got into his car and they probably kept driving like he probably didn't go to his house or trailer right then um because you wouldn't really need to drive there it's right it was right there so really the the more evidence that comes out it it does seem like she hopped into a car now unlike most true crime podcasters you all have been to this location how many times? I don't even know. Ten. Yeah. A, yeah, a bunch. So from the crash site to where the dogs lost more ascent, is that the Bradley Hill Road? Yes. Yeah, right before Bradley Hill Road is where uh, the dogs la- lost the scent. 
So in your mind, that's the area where she most likely got into a vehicle. That's correct. A that, stranger's vehicle. That's my opinion. From, from your thinking, correct? Yep. yep, that's my opinion. Okay. And how far is that, that from the crash scene to that area? To avoid confusion, the tree that has the blue ribbon on it, that's not exactly where the car crashed, according to the police report. The police report has her further east a little bit uh, closer to Butch Atwood's house and to Rick Forcier's house. And it's about 75 to 100 yards from where the dogs lost the scent right before Bradley Hill. So very close. Yeah, I think... Within sight. Yeah, I mean, there's some there's some conjecture, I think. I think you, you, if you Google it, you'll find some people saying 100 feet. You'll find some people saying 300 feet. Um, yards. Lance said, well, Lance says 100 yards. That would be 300 feet. Um, you hear anywhere between those marks. We've never measured it. It's somewhere in that range. So you just touched on something that I think is very important, right? If you Google it, you will see about anything, right? Anything pertaining to this case, 10 different versions of X. And, and I think that's what makes this case somewhat hard to tell. It's really the main reason we wanted to have you on people that have extensively reviewed the case, researched the case. Uh, it really helps to clear up some of these things. I know it kind of feels like Un- unnecessary minutia sometimes, but if you if you put a if you put a stop to something as soon as you can, then it doesn't become something so elaborate and sinister, like the rag in the tailpipe or something to that effect. It's good to hear from you guys, boots on the ground, somebody that's actually been on that spot, been on that location, to sort of lay out the how it looked there and, and the distances and stuff. Yeah, and we actually had an interview with Tim Westman. It was an impromptu interview. When we were filming up there, who's Tim Westman? Uh, Tim Westman, Faith Westman's husband. Yeah, who's that? The the neighbor. Okay, the the neighbor whose wife called nine one one. Yeah. Okay, I just I don't know that they knew that. I was about to get into it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me start this again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we had a an, an impromptu interview with Tim Westman up there when we were shooting for the documentary. We were at the location of the accident, and he lives in the house right across the street, and he fired up his lawnmower, and uh, it was October, which was kind of funny, but he, he ended up being outside, and we walked over and, and spoke to him, and his one of his main points was that he, he s- claims that she did not hit where um, everybody thinks she hit, right around the blue ribbon. He said she hit those three trees up there. She, she was up there. She was like closer closer to uh, Rick Forcier's house, further away than most people think. And there's, there's that account. There's a police record that shows that that's accurate. That's where the police found the vehicle. And every, but that's just one of those things that keeps, uh, keeps un, unraveling. Like, was she there? Here, there, here. And, you know, did she, that the damage could have been, couldn't have been caused by uh, the snowbank or a tree, but everything's already there. You know, the, the, the eyewitness right across the street says that she was there. The police report says she was there. According to witness A, she says she was in that vicinity. And it's just funny how it sort of un, unwraps as, well, that can't be accurate because the accident report says that the damage wasn't caused like that. Most people just get caught up in the believing people are lying. If you believe no one's lying first and take a look at it that way, then I think it's a lot more clear to people because a lot of the tr- 
the truths that people said, they don't have to conflict. It's their interpretation of what they saw and experienced. Right. So, Lance, you touched on the rag and the tailpipe. We talked about it in our episode, but we didn't get too in-depth into it. You guys spent some time on that, I think, over some episodes. In and out, right? Touching on it. I didn't know if you could just kind of talk about, you know, maybe what people thought that meant in the beginning and maybe what you know now about that. Yeah, th- this one runs the gambit. Um, a lot of people will hear about the rag in the tailpipe and they think, well, Mora had to have gotten gas at some point on this trip, which we be- which we believe as well based on her uh, fuel nozzle in the car. That's about three quarters full. She had to have stopped somewhere. Uh, a lot of people will say that some bad guy saw her fill in her tank and they start, they snuck up and put the rag in her tailpipe and then followed her and waited for her to skid out. And then they abducted her. A couple of problems with that. Um, they would have had to have been like 10 minutes behind her. And the rag would have kicked out. The rag most likely would have kicked out. And it also doesn't seem like there was any kind of struggle in getting Mora into a vehicle. And once again, we just come back to the facts that Faith Westman across the street calls 911 and says that there is activity by the trunk. And we know that Mora, based on conversations with Curtis Murray and Julie, and they've seen and they, they knew that their father, Fred, had told Mora to put the rag in her tailpipe because her car was running on three cylinders and it was going to start smoking and popping. And, you know, if you wanted to just kind of get through campus, driving through campus, like put the rag in the tailpipe, that might get you past like some campus cop or something so it doesn't raise attention. So we have that account. We have Curtis saying that he's seen this happen. We have talked to people, Faith's account that's documented on, on the 911 call. So we got the nine act, clicks. The nine clicks of the of the ignition that she tried to turn over. So it it is fairly safe to say that she put the rag in the tailpipe in order to try to get some more power to get her car started to get out of there. The, the, the fact that Fred even identified it as a rag that he owned and told her to put it in the tailpipe. Yeah. Keep this on you. The alternative is a little too far for us to believe that some random serial killer who kind of premeditated this, I, I guess, if he abducted her, um, happened to do the exact thing her dad gave her the advice to do. And such a roundabout way to abduct somebody. Yeah. If, just bump her off the road. That road is like super windy. Right. If you see her at a gas station and her car is, a, you know, clearly not a car that is like built for those roads. That Saturn isn't built for those roads. Bump it off the road and and do what you're going to do. I mean, you don't, you're not going to go through this elaborate rag plan. Alternate theory is people will say, oh, well, she left the rag as a message to Fred to tell them that she got away safely. Or, I used to like or that something. One. Right, or maybe the four thousand dollars got got hidden in the in the tailpipe, and then the rag pushed it up. Um, all those, you know, to me doesn't really ring true. And also, what we learned when we went to visit the car in December of 2013 was that the entire exhaust system, the back exhaust, including the rag, uh, including the tailpipe, had been taken off the car. So we can only presume that it, that was in evidence. So th- the police did their due diligence on it to find out if, if there was anything weird going on with that, and we can only presume that they didn't. And you mentioned the police. 
you know, there's been some people that have suspected the police are covering something up or some way involved. What's your take on the police investigation and their uh, their openness and, and what they talked about publicly? Well, we're sitting here 15 years later, so the investigation was flawed to begin with, I will say. Um, and I think they would agree with that today. It uh, Obviously, if what we're talking about is true and someone random got her, uh, this is the toughest case to solve. So starting with that preface, they definitely didn't do everything they probably should have done right off the bat. There is information that they know that they could give out now that would help stir up the community, could potentially lead to more leads. And they have done that to some extent. Last year at CrimeCon 2018, they gave us more as dorm room photos that had never been out there. For the disappearance of Maura Murray Oxygen Show, they gave the ATM photos of Maura Murray that had never been out there. So the police is changing. They're they're changing their approach to social media and releasing information uh, to some extent very little by little. Do we think there's a conspiracy? Like, oh. like it's it's the question of the investigation. Uh, are they withholding too much? Did they do something? The I, I think you can get to the answer. They didn't do anything nefarious to Maura Murray by really just taking a step back and thinking of it from the opposite angle, right? So if they had, if someone, if the first responding officer or if um, the chief of police uh, who was, you know, the the conjecture that he was really driving the SUV. You know, if one of them got her, the other one and the rest of the station at this point would know. They would have known about it. This couldn't have been done in complete secrecy from other officers. So now you're talking about a conspiracy. So you're talking about more than just one person. You're talking two. You're talking it's a station of four. Station of four. How is that going to go unnoticed? And you're talking about the assistant uh, the senior assistant attorney general who is really the authority on the case now and include and which includes the entire cold case unit all these guys would have to be in on it the entire state like this conspiracy would have to have started one 21 year old woman from massachusetts on the corner of this road that people don't drive on much and now it goes all the way up to the state house. A lot of people like using the the tourism thing, and they'll say that they're covering it up because they know that it'll keep tourists away from that area. And that's just that's just a silly um, thought to have because this is the White Mountains. It's been there for centuries. People have been hiking and and skiing, and and it's not going to stop. I mean that that's not going to stop. Bad things happen to people all over the country, all over the world, and people. Don't not go to a very, very popular tourist destination if that's their choice. Also, Cecil Smith arrested his superior, Jeff Williams, for drunk driving. Now that'll support people's theory of a conspiracy, Lance. So he's trying to get him out of the <laughs> out of the force or something. Like they they do a, like adhere to the law the best they can. Yeah, it's it's a hard um, leap to make. I think at this point, they, they haven't done everything right. We know that. They, they're holding back some information. We know that. Uh, they haven't checked out this new lead that is apparently happening now. We know that. It's just really hard to believe anything um, nefarious took place. The official timeline, does you know that really doesn't work either. But again, the alternative is what? Is that... A lot of people are in on this. It's re- really hard to believe. If 
if you were to say one officer did something and kept it hidden, I could believe that, but it doesn't uh, seem like the case here. So there's been a lot of conjecture that, because there's a lot of players in this case, from family to her boyfriend, you know, all these people, there's been conjecture that not everyone's been fully cooperative. What's your take on that? I think the people who are not being fully cooperative are products of what happened over the course of a few years, a couple of years after her disappearance, a few years after her disappearance. So maybe from, say, 2008 to 2015 or 16, a lot of people looked at it. For example, Bill Rausch, her boyfriend, they 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 look at it like, man, everybody who opens their mouth with this case either becomes a suspect or their lives are just put on public display for everybody to judge. So if anybody asks me, do you want to comment on this? I'm just going to say no, because they know what happened as far as their time during the search and the family's time during the search. And what does it have to do with anything that that someone online wants to find out someone on reddit wants to find out they're just going to keep their mouth shut right right and actually here's a really good example of that uh we, we did an episode i think it was called mora's supervisor episode 84 where we had this woman this lovely woman named karen into the office she was uh she w- sort of witnessed mora's breakdown a couple of nights before she went missing a lot of people thought that that could have led to her wanting to get away and what was she really breaking down about. There were a lot of answers that Karen could have had that that took the story one way or another. She came in here and sat with us for over an hour. But if you look at the YouTube video of this episode and read some of the comments, you will see people saying she talks way too fast. She's not even taking a breath. Are you sure she's not hiding something? I'm not kidding. There are about five comments on the YouTube video of this episode that suggest that she might have been involved in Mora's disappearance. Because of her speech pattern. Because of her speech patterns. Because like, she was very articulate and, and very short. Like, I won't, yeah, I won't she, say she was ar- ar- like uh, articulate with her speech. She, she'd talk like a, and then be like, oh, but, but then I was around. And so this is what really happened. So it made it like impossible to cut the little, uh, a little thick. But a lot of times we will cut like the ums and the ahs from an interview. This one, we kind of didn't have a chance for right, it. Impossible. Yeah, she was sort of <laughs> we, a, a verbal train. We were like, we, it would sound like a, like she was a robot if we were to just cut all those things. So we just let it go. And the result of that was people thinking that she was actually involved. She wasn't involved. Well, it's just, You know what I mean? It's just people, uh, I think to some extent, people who listen to the show think that, you know, that, that it's a little bit of like a hunt a killer kind of game. Like, can I find the clue that uh, leads to, to the right answer? And that's all valid. I will tell you, there's no there's no clue that Karen is giving in episode 84 that uh, that tells you that she's guilty of anything. And other people who don't cooperate, the, that that might be a bit of a misconception. The some some of the people up in that area, some of the neighbors, they don't cooperate because they don't want to be bothered because that is why they moved to that area, and it's a it's a big inconvenience for them to answer questions to strangers who come into their their neighborhood and knock on their door. However, there are people in that area who have welcomed us in there and said, "Whatever you need to do, feel free to do it," because they they know that we'll treat them with respect, but. To to say someone's not being cooperative in an investigation because they don't want a stranger knocking on their door in their neighborhood, uh, I wouldn't use the word cooperative. I would say that they, they want their privacy. 
And there's nothing more and wrong you- with wanting your privacy. For police officers who people say aren't cooperating, they simply don't need to give you all of the information, and it's irresponsible for them to give you all of the all, any evidence, any findings, any information. If a rusty knife that might have had bloodstains on it is passed off to law enforcement, they don't owe the public an explanation as to the results of, the, of that knife because people on Reddit are screaming about it. And you mentioned Mora's breakdown. It, no matter what happened or whatever the, the reason she went missing, it's safe to say that she was at a bad point uh, in her life at that moment. Yeah, nothing um, has led us uh, any, anywhere other than Mora was having some uh, stressors, some stress in her life, some emotional difficulties at that point. We have learned nothing in the run of this podcast that would suggest anything other than that. Uh, for her wanting to take a uh, a few days off or maybe up to a week off of school. Yeah, she, she was going through a difficult time. And we've heard from so many people who were her age at that time, who were who are her age at the, like who are 21 now, who have told us. Yeah, that that is how I think. Yes, it is not uncommon for me to receive a bunch of bad news right in a row and consider maybe just getting away. Maybe maybe just getting away and going to my favorite place and Mora's favorite place, one of her favorite places, was the White Mountains. To do a deep dive like you guys have done in the Mora's case, I assume you had to have had access to a lot of materials, police reports. How easy was it to get that stuff and did you have cooperation with people to help you facilitate that? Yeah, it was uh, right in the beginning. It was not as difficult as we imagined it to be because James Renner had all of the documents accessible on his on his blog on his website, and it was pretty easy to get the 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 dispatch logs and things like the old uh, newspaper articles. Any any sort of uh, you know coverage that was done for Mora at the time. What was a little bit more difficult was establishing a relationship with law enforcement and getting the item, the item list that was in her car, uh, transcripts from the oxygen network. That was that was fun to get, but it's it seemed like you know give give credit to where credits due. James did a lot of the legwork. James Renner did a lot of the legwork when it came to obtaining documents, and he made it available. Yeah, we got some from uh, other private investigators who had been handed things from the. Murray family or the Roush family. Uh, that's John Smith. Uh, Aaron Larkin has gotten some uh, documents as well. So we definitely have a lot of help in the community. I mean, in the community, they they are able to pull together things. And Helena Dwyer Murray, who was the family spokesperson for a long time before she passed, had uh, some documents on on their site and then they're on their Facebook page as well. So there was about as much as the police were able to let out. I mean, that that was out. Just putting you guys on the spot, I think you touched on a little bit earlier, but what are your personal theories about what you think happened to Mora? I think we I think we kind of um, are more comfortable talking about that now because of the guests that we've had on the show, like the profiler, FBI profiler, Jim Clemente. I mean, we don't know what happened to her. No one knows. But we do know that it had to have been somebody familiar with the area. It had to be somebody who was capable of capitalizing on an opportunity like this, 
perhaps somebody who has a history of violence or violence has escalated since Moore's disappearance. So if you're looking for somebody, it's got it's it's somebody familiar with the area or lives in the vicinity probably has some sort of history of violence and will maybe have some violence after the fact as well. Would probably have some knowledge of the woods, you would think, or at least some way to dispose of a body that hasn't, you know, alerted anybody to it yet. So that that probably means not too many people are involved in that too, or, or no one but this one potential person. Yeah. So you're talking of like, why would you be knowledgeable about the woods in that area you 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 could hike you could hunt you could be um, some sort of fish and game expert uh, like a fisherman or something like that how would you dispose of a body if you're not a professional serial killer what do you do do you think about your time in the logging industry or you just concrete have a, industry or something do you just have a big backyard where you could have gotten away with something built a built a gazebo or something or just built a grave and put dirt back on it but again i think this would be one a one person job i think uh if there's more than one person involved in this disappearance i'm surprised they haven't cracked by now well i and i think it's the same argument against the police conspiracy right right because we know from researching a lot of cases it's really hard for people to keep their mouth shut long term. Yep. There's there's always something in it for somebody else if they have some knowledge of a crime. If if you know what happened and you're not saying anything, that's more detrimental than you putting the right person in 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 the place of, you know, justice. Right. And so as far as a name goes, I don't have one to give you. I, I have a faceless person in mind, essentially, um, who was comfortable looking enough to Mora that where she thought this person was going to help her. But I think that's the key, right? This is in your mind, somebody somewhat local to the area, but not connected at all really with Mora Murray before, before that. That's right. Okay. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I definitely want to make sure I understand. That's it. Yep. hundred percent accurate. Uh, that, that is our beliefs. So what do you guys have coming up uh, to mark the anniversary? I'm sure you guys have some something you're going to be working on with the case. Well, we were going to release an episode where it's it sort of takes you through the case um, over the years and shows you how things have changed from the early days. Because, again, just to reiterate, uh, the, the case in the public sector is completely different now than what it was in the early days and even what it was five years ago. There is so much more information out there now. And we came up with this idea when we were doing those creator commentaries because we found ourselves looking back at some of the old documents and especially some of the old newspaper articles. And there's some information in there and just a certain feel about the area and the case itself that has changed. So first, we wanted to not put ourselves in really, I don't want to say the spotlight, but we will be doing something for the anniversary. It'll be a retrospective of the last 15 years, but the the anniversary is really about what the family wants to do for themselves. And a 15 year milestone is very important to the family and they should have that for themselves. The, the, the anniversary of someone disappearing shouldn't be something that like people like Tim and I 
you know, start to broadcast, like light the candle, post that on social media, pay your respects. But I think at some point over the past year, Tim and I just realized this is, this is, that's the family's moment. If we want to do something for Mora, we'll do something around her birthday and celebrate her that way. But this year we just, really want to do like a retrospective of where where we have been and where we're at now. And we're trying to put some resources towards uh, sort of celebrating Maura's birthday in the way that her disappearance had been cele- celebrated a little bit in the past and celebrates the wrong word, but I mean, uh, memorialize her, the anniversary of her disappearance. So one, we are planning something potentially for May, some kind of fundraiser. May 4th is Maura's birthday. So uh, there's a chance that something in the community comes together for that. Just based on the trajectory of, of everything you've learned along the way and all the evidence that you've seen and, and where things are now, do you think Moore's case is going to be solved one day? Yeah, I think so. Got to have hope. Yeah. I, th- I think every day we see something that comes up with technology, whether it's DNA or, I mean, it's basically DNA. I think there's something that, that has to come up that'll that'll lead to some answer my biggest fear though is that it leads to something that just creates more questions like if her cell phone is ever found buried somewhere that's just gonna that's just going to to take this whole thing and just escalate it to another level but yeah i think eventually this case will definitely be resolved somehow i don't know i don't know how or when but uh it's got to happen so, Tim, Lance, I definitely want to thank you for taking the time to come on, share some of your experience. You guys have put a lot of work into this case in particular. We touched on it, right, in our first part episode. But I want to encourage everyone, if you want to learn more about the disappearance of Moore Murray, and if you want to go into the deepest dive possible, Go out, start from the beginning of the Maura Murray podcast and let Lance and Tim take you through it and then check out Crawl Space, check out Empty Frames. I mean, these are great guys. You will like all of that. Thanks. Thanks. That's very (laughs) nice of you. All right. So that was the original interview that we did and then the breaking news. So Morph was able to reconnect with Tim and Lance and... We want you to hear that interview. All right. So uh, today is, what is today's date? Today is the 8th, February 8th. It's one day before our episode with you guys as guest is going to air about Maura Murray on the 15th anniversary of her disappearance. And I didn't even know this morning, but you guys told me there's some major news possibly in the case. Tell us what that is. The major news in Moore's case is that the Murray family, through Fred, they're working with a GPR company, a ground-penetrating radar company, and cadaver dogs, and they have a location which has been looked at since the beginning of Moore's disappearance, where police have cleared it, but Fred was operating off of a tip. The new owners of this location allowed them to come in. They did cadaver dog searches, and they did GPR, and the cadaver dogs had a positive hit. And the GPR has identified an anomaly. And that's that's pretty big because if that's a body, then you have to wonder who else might that be. It's it's very likely that it could be more. Yeah. I mean, the, the presumption is that it, it seems like it, it could be a body, uh, but we don't know. 
Um, dogs have been wrong before, but it does seem... And there's video footage of this that, that was on CBS Boston, so you can check that out. Uh, there's video footage of, the, of these two dogs uh, laying down. Um, so it, it does seem like there was certainly, at one point at least, if not currently, some something human, some human remains under that spot. And whereabouts is this in location to where her car was found? They say that it is close to where her car was found, but it's pretty obvious that the family is working with the current owners to maintain the privacy because especially around this time, there's always an element of dark tourism that happens in that area. And there's no way that there should be any compromise in the investigation by announcing a specific location. Now, when, when you say property owner, are we talking about somebody's front yard possibly, or are we talking about uh, a stretch of land well, it seems like it's in in the basement of uh, of a house. It seems like it's in the concrete uh, basements beneath the house. Wow, that's uh, that seems like a place she wouldn't wind up accidentally. Well, no, no, definitely wouldn't have wound up there accidentally. Wow, that is interesting. Yeah, and has has Fred ever gotten this excited or come out and and had this kind of emotional? Um, reaction or gotten this excited before about a possible development in the case? It doesn't seem like it. Not not to our recollection. I don't think we've ever witnessed Fred being so convinced that this was his daughter. A specific location with specific intents to dig. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember a time when he was that passionate about something like that. But it is important to note, Morph, and I just want to put it out there that whatever the answer to this anomaly is probably is not going to be resolved today or uh, even in the next month, likely. You know, it's definitely something that the community, while we understand they're excited and everyone wants to know more, um, it's, it's important to know that everyone needs patience right now. And have they given any kind of time frame about how long this might take? No, the police have said they were planning to potentially check it out in the spring. And now with this, uh, these interviews that Fred has done, it seems to he, he seems to be trying to light a fire under under them to to get them there before the spring um, or, you know, just to at least get them to commit to do this at all. At least accelerate the process. Well, and the news coming out right now, you know, a day before uh, the anniversary is the timing is bizarre it's you almost wonder if 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 it's done to to help create some uh, awareness of the case that it doesn't already have what do you think what's your take on that well fred is is typically kind of um unfiltered i would say and there has been media coverage because this is the 15 year anniversary and we're right on the brink of that so um i i think the the combination there of news coverage and uh, just you know, Fred and and the way he is, and uh, you know he 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 doesn't get, give an f. You know he's not gonna he he is not gonna kowtow to law enforcement he or anybody. I mean he he is uh, very determined and he is uh, angry that law enforcement hasn't checked this out already. Wow. It'll be interesting to see what happens. And and as far as you guys know, this isn't related to the guy a couple weeks ago that claimed that he uh, had some information about. More being uh, buried someplace, was it? It's I, likely the it, same lead, yeah. It, it very well could be, but I don't feel safe putting out like a definite yes or no that we think it is. All we can go on right now is what we're being told by the family through the news broadcast because 
they are trying to remain as private as possible with it. Well, it's going to be big news if there's anything there. And I hope 15 years is too long. So let's hope that they do find something there that answers some questions finally. We're hoping. And I know you guys are going to be on top of it and busy. And I hope you'll have some updates soon on Missing Maura Murray. We'll definitely be sending people over to listen to that. Thanks a lot. Awesome. We appreciate it. All right. Let us know what happens. Okay. Will do. All right. So amazing stuff from Tim and Lance. We really appreciate them taking out time, carving it out of their schedule to talk with Morph and I about this case. It is a case that they're very passionate about. And I think like we said on the last episode, if you have not listened to Missing More Murray, it is an extremely deep dive into this case. But that's it for another episode of Criminology. You know, if you like the show, go out, give us a five-star rating. That goes a long way towards helping other people find the show. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook. Just search Criminology. You'll find all of that. And Morph and I will be back with another episode next week. Talk to you then.